Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of Football Insiders podcast show, The Inside Track. I'm your host, Lewis Piers, and with me today, I'm joined by Football Insider editor Wayne Veazey and our special guest, lifelong Man United fan and Football Insider journalist, Daniel Feliciano. We have some exclusive news on Newcastle United and Aston Villa, a surprise Man City versus Arsenal transfer battle, as well as the latest on Man United sacking Eric Ten Hag and selling six mega earning stars. We have some big news from our experts on what really is happening at Villa following their extreme extraordinary transformation, including Unai Emery's bust-ups with senior stars, what the future has in store for £100 million man Douglas Louise, and the big January signing blitz being planned. We'll look into another club set to be very busy in January, Newcastle United, and how their plans have been flipped on their head as a result of the club's catastrophic casualty list. Eddie Howe may seemingly have a job for life at Newcastle, but that is not how the Saudi owners see it, as their huge ambitions are detailed. We'll also have the very latest on the dramatic events at Old Trafford, where the twists and turns off the pitch are proving to be more interesting than anything on it. Our source tells us the very latest on January outgoings and incomings, how close Ten Hag is to the sack, and who would be making the decision. To wrap up, we'll have a brilliant Liverpool-Manchester United combined 11 ahead of Sunday's showdown at Anfield, and there are actually more United names in there that may have been expected, plus one or two shock in-form omissions. Before we jump in, I'd really appreciate it if you hit that follow button on your preferred podcast platform. And if you like what you hear, make sure to give our pod a top review and rating. This enables us to produce the very best possible show. Let's get straight into the episode discussing Newcastle United's transfer plans. Can you tell us about any potential rumours that are flying around? You know, are there any names that they're looking at potentially going into that period? Yeah, I mean, you've already mentioned central midfield. Calvin Phillips is is a top target for Newcastle. I mean, we've been reporting on him at Football Insider for a couple of months. That would be more likely to be a loan deal. I mean, Newcastle, one thing that's really important to emphasise, they're very tight with financial fair play restrictions. They don't have a huge budget to play with. They can't just go and buy player X for 60 million or 75 million. That won't be happening. So they're going to have to box quite clever in the January window and expect them to bring in lots of players. I mean, I've been told that there could easily be three signings in January, but loan deals are more likely than permanent deals. And they could also use their Saudi links to bring players in from the four clubs that they own in Saudi Arabia. So Newcastle have been kind of accelerating their plans. They've been changed a little bit because of the Pope injury. He's out for at least four months, you know, we'll, we'll struggle to play much again this season. Yeah. So they've had to kind of turn their plans on the head a bit. And as you said, midfield is a big issue as well. So do you do you think that actually that the pull, now that they don't have Champions League, is the pull for those players that are in Saudi, does it have the same weight? Because I think one thing when you look at that team was that going into February, it really looked like they were going to be in Europe in some capacity. So if you were a player in the Saudi Pro League, what would your stance on that be then? I think players will look at it, what's best for my career? Is it best for my career to be playing at um, an elite English club? And am I likely to get in the team? I think in terms of the finances, that could be sorted out. And obviously, Piff, the Saudi Arabia owners own both clubs. I don't think that would be an issue. But in terms of the players themselves, they'll be looking at, would I get match minutes? Then, you know, you mentioned Lewis Smiley in midfield, 70 years old. As a a senior player, one of those clubs in midfield would probably see himself as more likely to play than Lewis Miley, but then less likely than Bruno Gomera. So it does yeah. does depend on on the individual individual position they'll be covering for. And the interesting thing is that Newcastle are looking at lots of positions as well, Lewis, not just centre midfield, they're looking at the goalkeeper, they're looking at centre back and a third striker as well. And initially back in wow. September, it was more of a um young unproven striker who could develop under Eddie Howe and his coaching team but that's slightly changed now now they want a forward who's a bit more experienced so that's as a result of how the season's gone and you look at how many minutes um, not so much Isaac and Wilson because they've shared that role between them haven't they yes um, but it's more in the other positions like Anthony Gordon he's played 1500 minutes mm. um, Almiron's played most of the minutes as well so's Jalinton so I think those those positions they are looking at and you know from what I hear that 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 potential forward signing could also come in albeit on loan as well um but the Botman one I think Lewis has hit them really hard I mean because he was brilliant last season wasn't he and yeah. started this season really well um so that's another position as well I mean LaSalle's 
has done much, much better than I thought, than many Newcastle fans thought. And, yeah. you know, given that the club were very happy to sell him in previous transfer windows, including particularly in January of this year, for him to play so much and actually play at a decent level and really sort of stand up to some top level centre forwards has been, you know, has been, you know, a huge, a huge sort of surprise to many, but also, mm. you know, a flexion of that, you know, he's a decent centre back. Absolutely. And he's someone that can be relied upon, isn't he? He's someone that mm. steps in and does do a job. And he, I thought he did okay last night. I didn't yeah. think they yeah. played badly. I actually, I thought they were quite unfortunate, really. And again, I think it wasn't to do with a lack of um, a lack of quality. I think it was just they were, and I know we've said about exhausted, but I think their squad did look so tired. They'd given everything in, in yeah. that game against Spurs. Didn't work out tonight. They knew the pressure. Sorry, last night they knew the pressure. And of course, it, it, it they capitulated. But do, do, do you remember though in, in Jurgen Klopp's first season at Liverpool when all those Liverpool players kept breaking down with hamstring injuries one yes. after another and that's because they were being overtrained in a much more demanding and intense style that their bodies weren't used to and they kept breaking down one after the other and it started happening again in his second season and then he completely changed the training as a result of that Klopp and yes. his coaching team whereby they held off a bit they had less demanding sessions or um, you know, the demanding sessions were well between the games and it meant that the training loads reduced and the injuries reduced as well. And then you look at how many injuries Liverpool have generally had over the last six years, five, six years, they're much, much less. And, mm. you know, all, all, all teams do have injuries, but Liverpool don't have generally have 10, 12 at once, do they? Um, no. I mean, you could say, you could say, man, Hamid Salah's a complete one-off, but I don't think he is at Liverpool. I think there's quite a lot of them that, that play most games, play 80% of the minutes. Yeah. Arnold Robertson normally, Van Dijk. Um, obviously, the goalkeeper, uh, Trent, uh, um, you know, Henderson always did. You know, a lot yeah. for being at these players didn't get that many sort of muscle injuries. So I think Newcastle have to look at themselves as well. Um, you know, have they been doing too much training? Yeah. And then go look at it, look at off the pitch rather than just on field results as well. I think yeah. the one question, Wayne, I, I've got going forwards. You know, we mentioned you mentioned about the Chelsea game next week in the in the Carabao Cup quarter final away from home at Stamford Bridge. If they get a result in that, you know, what's going to be a, a success now for how this season they've crashed out of Europe, they're still in this competition. If they win that, do you think that you think you know is that something to cheer about for Newcastle? I, I think for, I think for Newcastle, a trophy would be absolutely incredible, astonishing, game changer whatever adjective you choose, because they haven't won one, have they, for, for, for 50 years. They've come so close. They've lost five cup finals. I think a cher uh, that that would be as important as finishing top four. I think the top four obviously has the Champions League and then the QDOS and then the finances. That, that That is really important. But a trophy would change everything. And also, I think it would change the club's mentality. It would change the fans' mentality. And that game next week has suddenly become really important, hasn't it, for yeah. for both clubs, giving, you know, Chelsea a belly in the top 10 of the Premier League. Newcastle, seventh, are going to have a mighty battle to get fourth. And that looks pretty unrealistic. I mean, I know there might be five Champions League places next season, but that's not certain for English clubs. So, it looks it looks pretty uphill for for Newcastle in the Premier League, so that game's huge. And for Chelsea, I mean, which clubs it bigger for? This is the question. I to be yeah. honest, I think it would. I think in terms of pressure, I think there is more pressure on Chelsea to get a result because of Pochettino. I think fans yeah. are, are expecting more. And in one sense, I think actually Newcastle have a free hit because if they go out, well, it's another competition they lose. But I do think there is going to be an expectation of let's go and get, you know, let's go and get a result. Chelsea have not been good this season at all. They are so hit and miss every week. Mm. I mean, it's, it's a really interesting point. Although um, Darren Eels, the Newcastle Chief Executive, he did say last week that they expect to be in the in European football in February. So wow. there is that expectation from the club's owners. Yeah. And um I don't think it is free hits enough. I don't think that's how the owners are looking at it. I think they expect results and you know their their mentality might be slightly different to that of their fans who are just absolutely thrilled by the ride and by the transformation under how and remember it the Mike Ashley years all too well. Yeah. But the owners they they're they're expecting results. So you know if this this went on 
medium and long term, you know, there's no guarantee they would they would even stick with the manager. You know, nothing's yeah. nothing's permanent. It's you know the the the, the owners look at it very very differently to to how many fans do, and I don't think I don't think that can be ignored either. It's similar, actually, how we were talking last week. If you've missed the episode, please go and listen about Steve Cooper and Maranakis, that same feeling of fans' mm. expectation versus actually the owners and, and the difference yeah. in opinion. You know, it's, And in one sense, you know, as we as we discussed also in previous episodes, Newcastle have been really unfortunate with what's happened to Tenali, but I'm sure that that doesn't change the owner's view. Just because he's not there doesn't mean there shouldn't be success. He shouldn't be the glue that means they go and win trophies. That that shouldn't be on him necessarily. And also, we, don't forget, yeah. yeah, don't forget executives, something has made massive mistakes in terms of yeah. that, that deal, not investigating the gambling, not being aware of the addiction and how um, on the scale of the addiction and what potential impact that, that could have on the player and the player's future. I mean, that was that was an embarrassing mistake. It's cost the club hugely already on the pitch, never mind financially having to pay his £140,000 a week wages um, throughout the time he's out for 10 months. So that that, that was devastating and, and the executives made the mother of all blunders there, didn't they, in terms of Dan Ashworth, the um, director of football and and the executives who, who completed the deal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when if we move on from one club who might not be pushing to, for top four to one who actually look maybe dead cert to be right up there, Aston Villa Football Club, what a story this season. Can you talk us through, please, any of the transfer news ahead of January? Because surely they've got a strength in going into this window. Yeah, I mean, the... American owners, NSWE, they've not been shy of spending big throughout their reign. They always have done. They've backed their managers to the hilt and had unprecedented spending. Um, the information I have is that they're going to spend really big again in January. They're going to be very active. They are already active behind the scenes and they will look to make multiple signings in key positions. And they have... Um, extraordinary resources and they kind of have gone under the radar a little bit I suppose not only this season but in previous season in terms of their actual spending because it generally it's around 25 to 35 million per player on lots and lots and lots of players they, they haven't gone out and had like the 78 80 million pound signings but you know they've been massive spenders you look at their net spend over the last four or five years it is monumental um, but they're they're planning to go big again in January Wow. Have you got any particular names you could maybe, maybe give us? Are there any positions that they're, they're particularly looking at as well? Yeah, I mean, they're looking to bring in four, uh, sorry, two forwards, from what I understand. Wow. Um, they're, they, they're very aware. They're overly right on Ollie Watkins at the moment. He's played all the minutes this season and he's and he's obviously having the season of his career. He's been, he's been outstanding. But one injury to him and you could very much see there team falling apart or the results starting to be significantly affected he's not just a goal scorer he's also um an absolute threat to defenders throughout the match as well and i mean not nine assist wayne in, in the champion sorry in the premier league you know he's done yeah. he's done brilliantly you know and he is he he plays such a pivotal role i think going forwards for them people don't realize that he's not just a goal scorer he's yeah. someone that provides massively and i can totally agree i think if he if he is to get injured they are in big big trouble and you look at where else are the goals coming from in that team? And I think they've scored 33 Premier League goals, which is pretty impressive. I mean, it's not yeah. too far off Liverpool, Man City. Um, but with, without his creativity, that would, you know, the, the, they don't have a backup anywhere near that level. So they're looking at two fours. That could be one wide forward as well. Um, in terms of targets, Tammy Abraham's one. He's currently recovering from a long-term knee injury and ACL that will likely side limb sideline him until maybe march so but he's a he's a long-term target they do like him and he can lead the forward line and is very mobile emery type of player Inaki williams is another one um in the liga he's he's more of a traditional wide forward um very very excited very quick um very capable on the counter-attack which is quite important to how Aston Villa play. Nice. So they're two, position, two, two players. And they're also looking at centre midfield, Lewis, as well. Mm. Um, more, of a, more of a backup type player. Um, then Donker could leave if they bring in a new central midfielder um, and also potentially a defender as well. But I think probably centre mid and forwards are the most, or the biggest priorities at the moment for Aston Villa. 
Okay, because the one player I think that always gets spoken about, Wayne, is, of course, Douglas Luiz potentially mm. leaving every transfer window. He's now mm. becoming the Marco Royce of the transfer windows that every year clubs seem to be eyeing him up and then it doesn't happen. Have you got any updates potentially, please, about him leaving potentially in January or the summer? Because, I mean, this season, 16 games, he's got five goals and two assists in the Premier League. He's been absolutely integral to their success. Yeah, no, he's been brilliant. I mean, the interest from Arsenal is very real. It's genuine. He is a top target, the number one target for Arsenal, and that is both January and next summer. But Aston Villa are adamant they will not sell Douglas Lewis in January. Um, they see him as too important to the team and it'd be too disruptive to leave him mid-season. That would be the case even if they hadn't have had these remarkable wins over the last couple of weeks against against Arsenal and Man, Man City. They, they, they were, that was the position for Man's so from Aston Villa, even even a couple of weeks ago. Um, but it's in, in, interestingly, Lewis, they see him now as a hundred million pound player. They, <laughs> they see him as sort of you know they're looking at the Declan Rice fee, the Moises Casado fee, the Enzo Fernandez fee, hundred million pound plus players. That's how they rate Douglas Lewis. And based on you know that that sort of financial barometer, you can you can see why they do. To be honest, yes. aren't you? I mean, he's absolutely huge. If you think, Wayne, even a few years back, I think he was a player that often people would talk about as someone, a bit like we've discussed with Dendonka, that he was surplus to requirements. You know, he mm. does a job and he comes in and the way that he's flourished, there's a reason why Man City had him. There's a reason why he's yeah. now, you know, he's now become the player he is. I think he has he has such a high ceiling and it wouldn't surprise yeah. me in the next 12 months if he does make a move to the likes of Arsenal or a top six club. Although saying that, that could be Villa. You know, we although we're saying that Villa absolutely could be in that conversation and whether that changes or not, if if Villa get top four, that guess uh, that remains to be seen. And there, One, is this, yeah. there is this massive premium as well, isn't there, for defensive midfielders, straight yes. central midfielders, num number sixes, um, whatever term terminology you use. And he generally plays plays that role. Sometimes um, Kamara plays a bit deeper than him, but he generally plays that role in the centre yes. of the pitch. And he can do everything. He can play in tight spaces. Um, he can win the ball, intercept, close down. He's mobile. He can pass his distributions, quality. Um, and often he makes a lot of the short passes, but he just keeps the, the team flowing and um, yeah. very, very rhythmical. Um, he he looks an absolute class act, but Man City looking at him as well, Lewis. So it's not mm. just it's not just Arsenal. Um, so you know, I, I certainly wouldn't be saying he will be an Arsenal player next summer. That's he could he could very well join um, an, another elite club. Um, he yeah. he is seen as that good, and at an age where he's reaching his peak as well. I mean, I think I think Villa would really struggle without him, and in a similar way to how Man City struggled without Rodri. Yeah. You know, they they looked at bringing. Kovacic, that hasn't worked. Yeah. Calvin Phillips, that hasn't worked. You know, there are quite a few players, I think, that have stepped into that team that just haven't lived up to expectation. And someone like Douglas Luiz, I mean, he is a like-for-like for, like for Declan Rice, for Rodri. You know, he could even match someone, I think, like a Fabino that played at Liverpool. You know, he is a top, top central defensive midfielder. And in today's modern game, I think they are so underrated, the, the role that they play. You know, you look at Liverpool, say, over the last few weeks before really Endo start, started picking mm. up his sort of form. Actually, that is the position, that is the hole that Liverpool have been desperate to fill. And so, I don't see Endo was picking up his form on Saturday. Crystal <laughs> Palace, Lewis, did you see him in the, in the first half? I mean, Copter came off half time, didn't they? Um, yeah, but, but the point you yeah. the, the point remains mm. that I think actually that is a position that is, I think, is so important nowadays. The spine of the team that's a position that often goes under the radar, I think, of all the positions across the field. I mean, I have to you say, taking on your point, he would be a brilliant signing for Liverpool. I really do yes. think that Liverpool, Liverpool don't have. A number six, do they, Lewis? They've got, no. you know, as as you know, I've said a few times, twenty-seven number eights. No one who can, <laughs> no one who can, no one who can play in front of the the defense. No one who's comfortable in that role. Um, McAllister has looked fish out of water there all season. I would say, fine, fine, fine player, but not a number six. And the rest of them, Gravenberg, Curtis Jones, Harvey Elliott, Shabozlai, they all want to play further at the pitch. Apart from Endo, Endo's the only natural number six, but. Um, yeah. Jurgen Klopp called him a monster. I, I I would say he's far far from a monster. He, he, most of the time, he's a cuddly little bear. I would say <laughs> that's that's quite a, that's an interesting description. One thing I would say, Wayne, that was quite interesting against the in the Palace game was that Trent eventually started playing at that number six, and I thought yeah. he looked quite uncomfortable as well. I don't yeah, think I agree. Suits that 
holding midfield role. I think he yeah. really suits that right central midfield role, darting forwards, balls in the box. It was, it feels quite strange for Liverpool. So actually, I think you're right. I think to, to come back to Douglas Louise, he actually would suit, I think, across the league. He maybe debatably, apart from Rodri at Man City, I think he starts for any Premier League club. I think he is that good. Oh, completely. Um, and I think he would be a really good partner for for Rodri at, at Man City as well. I mean, he's, 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 he's become a better player than Calvin Phillips and Kovacic, without a doubt. I, I watched quite a bit of the Man City game last night, actually, and I thought um, Man City did, did pretty well and Calvin Phillips actually did okay. But it felt like a bit of a dead rubber. It was felt a bit of a meaningless game and it was a bit too easy for Man City and that's probably why their young players were able to shine so sort of comprehensively. But Lewis looks a different level. Um, you know, I think the campaign for him to join Liverpool started today. We've just started it, Lewis. That, that's who, <laughs> yes. that's, that, that's who um, Jurgen Klopp and his recruitment team should be going for. There we go. All Liverpool fans listening will be will be absolutely delighted with that news. Mm. And one thing to talk about, Wayne, as well, is, is some of the issues off the pitch with Emery. I know you've got some news for us in terms of some of maybe Emery's interpersonal relations with some players. Yeah, I mean, Emery's very much a sergeant major star manager. You know, what he says goes. He's not arm around the shoulder, um, cuddle the players, Klopp style. Um, he's much more probably, um, in terms of man management style, a bit more like Pep Guardiola, where he's very intense. He's constantly giving instructions to them. That's both um, during matches and also in training. And he's very much pushing them to fit his tactical demands. And there has been bust-ups. There's been fallouts. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not... Um, unknown because I've written about it a few times that he's fallen out with Emilio Martinez. They don't have a great relationship. Yes, he continues to play him, and Martinez does very well. And I think Martinez is definitely one of the better goalkeepers in the Premier League. Yeah. But him and Emery don't have a brilliant relationship, and Emery would have been willing to sell him last summer. Um, wow. But yeah, so there hasn't isn't a great relationship. Um, Tielemann, when he was at the side start of the season, very very strained relationship with Emery at that point and you know I was told by some very good sources that they would even have been willing to list to offers for him in January and that was like Blimey. literally within a couple of months of him joining but Tillman is sub I mean you know, I don't know if you remember but he went on an international break in in October and said yep. that you know he wasn't wasn't happy at, at Villa he's subsequently turned it around he's playing all the games starting all the games I've got that four-man midfield and actually, Tillman's is playing is playing pretty well. I don't think he's anywhere near as important as Douglas Lewis and McGinn, but he has been playing pretty well. Yes. Um. So, Emery very much wants his play or demands his players do what he tells them to do. That's in terms of on match day and in training. That the all the moves are very rehearsed in terms of um, attacking and defensive moves in terms of their pressing. It's all very rehearsed and they've all got very, very specific roles and it's very much tailored to what the manager wants and expects from the players. And some of the players, you know, don't like it. But when you're in the team, the team's winning, suddenly the manager looks a genius, doesn't he? And yes. that, that's what it's looking like at Villa at the moment. It's really interesting. When, again, I, the one question I have back to that then is actually clearly the that hasn't disrupted morale too much. That hasn't had many issues because they're I mean, they are absolutely flying. But the one thing that I had sort of reflected on was, you know, Emery's time at Arsenal, which certainly I think actually was a bit underrated, really. I think mm. Arsenal fans turned on him very quickly and he didn't do a bad job. I know mm. that he did have issues with the captaincy. The main thing was about Granite Xhaka. They had fallen out and, you know, yeah. the whole thing him storming off the pitch, throwing, the, you know, all that whole saga. Yeah. I know... Right at the beginning, there was you know bits about Meza Urzel being omitted from the squad for for whatever yeah. reason. So there are issues. Do, does that come at a surprise to you, really, that, that there are those issues going on at Villa with Emery? Uh, no, it doesn't because because of the the type of manager he is, and I think he's probably the type of manager also, Lewis, is that who's more effective at that level of club, slightly below the elite. Because when you're at a club like Arsenal, or Liverpool, Man City, you're managing the uh, many global star superstars yes. and global superstars have the egos to match you only have to look at my life over the last 10 years and the difficulties so many managers brilliant high performing managers have had dealing with the dressing room and and an issue that's still going on now of course and we'll talk about it a little bit later and emery's much better they much more successful at a club below that level aston villa and seville the clubs he's managed in spain where the players are more 
sort of or less high performing they haven't got the same expectations and the egos aren't quite as big and his record in those clubs is brilliant he he's got a brilliant record of managing players and making players better and developing players into stars you know there's so many examples in this current villa team we've talked about douglas lewis we've talked about ollie watkins but there's so many others and even mcginn's gone to a new level um Carl, uh, Diego Carlos has gone to a new level. Cons has gone to a new level. There's so many players. Tillman's playing probably the best football of his career. Kamara's playing football. So even Leon Bailey, who's looked hopeless for most of his first couple of seasons, even he suddenly looks like a, a decent attacking wide player. So yeah. he is able to make players better, um, but they have to fit in with what he does. Otherwise, they're out the door. That's the way he always has been and always will be. Mm, it's interesting. It's a bit. It sounds a bit like that sort of Nigel Clough feeling that you have to, you know, if if you go against manager's orders, then actually you are a bit like Fergie in the same way. You know, when you hear players talk about Sir Alex Ferguson and his stance, mm. he wasn't that loving manager that was really sort of invested in the squad in that way. It was much more of a relation where he is standoffish, but he gets results and he makes it work. And, and Benitez yeah. probably a really good example, isn't it? Yeah, of modern example. Yeah, um, I mean Emery's not the type of manager going to be telling. The players every day that they're the best player in the world. Um, no. and what they have, what they have for dinner that night? That's that's not the way. That's not the way he is. Um, yeah. But you know he he is able to make them play better football and the results for us Villa speak to them. So I watched their game against Arsenal on Saturday and I thought Villa played the perfect match. I thought yeah. they were given how good Arsenal are. Um, and Arsenal went at their best that day anywhere near, but Villa made it so difficult for them. They are such a well coached team. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, Wayne, the, to sort of wrap up this segment, I would say, with Aston Villa, one question I have for you that I think is quite an interesting one now, of course, Villa, as you said, against Arsenal, broke the record for the most consecutive home wins in, in their history. Do you think actually now in the Premier League, it's the hardest ground or one of the hardest grounds to visit for a, for, for opposition? Because, you know, when I was growing up, it was always Old Trafford. That mm. was the ground that everyone mm. spoke about. You hate going to Old Trafford. Equally, Anfield, of course, we've seen over the years is an absolute mm. fortress. But are you surprised that Villa Park has turned into a ground where teams just struggle to turn up? Yes and no. I mean, Villa is, you know, a, a cathedral of English football. It is a cauldron. Um, the whole end is um, a, produces a brilliant atmosphere. And when, the, when they've got something to cling on to, as they do with this team at the moment, then it can be a very intimidating venue as well. And I mean, I've got I've got a lot of affection for Aston Villa because they are a proper club and they have a they have a proper history. And to see them doing really well and pushing the big boys, the big guns, the established elite, um, it makes the season much more interesting and also you know provides a compelling new story. So, in terms of fortresses you'd probably put them alongside Anfield and Etihad at the moment wouldn't you I think it's a better atmosphere than the Etihad I think Man City fans are a bit sated I think they've had too much success and they're a bit complacent um so I'd put I'd put Villa as um certainly a louder venue um and in terms of noise is probably up there St James's Park and Anfield Okay, we're back for the final segment of this podcast on the inside track. Another episode ticking along nicely. We're here with lifelong Manchester United fan and Football Insider journalist Daniel Feliciano. Daniel, how are you doing? We're good. Uh, Fretting about Sunday, but we're good. (laughs) (laughs) Already worrying. Yeah, that's that's exactly the answer that I was expecting. You're right to be worried, Daniel, as well. (laughs) Wait, if we... Oh, yeah, exactly. Wayne, if we if we just start, please, with some news on potentially Eric Ten Hag's future and what that might look like going forwards. Is his time dwindling now at the club? Dwindling, yes. Over, no. Um, there's obviously a big power vacuum in Man United at the moment. They've got the current regime still in place, run and overseen by the Glazers, while um, Sir Jim Ratcliffe's investment hasn't yet been completed, and that's likely now to drag on for some time. It's not just a matter of completing the actual 25% takeover, which is worth 1.3 million, but it's also for that process to be ratified by the Premier League. And that could take four to six weeks, potentially even eight weeks. So even if the deal was to be completed tomorrow, it would still be some time before it'd be um, vetted by the Premier League. So in terms of the impact Jim Ratcliffe can have on 
Man United, that won't be for some time. So Man United in a position at the moment where they can't really sack Ten Hag or appoint a new manager because there's a new guy going to be in charge because Sir Jim's going to be in charge of the football operations. His Ineos team, led by State Brailsford, are going to be in charge. And yes, they've been doing things behind the scenes. They've been very busy behind the scenes already, but not, they're not able to actually execute any of that at the moment. So there's this kind of strange situation where in a normal time, Eric Ten Hag might be very close to the sack. And yes, the club have major, major doubts about about him and his ability to make this team better, but then they, they won't be able to sack him probably until um, the taker or the first stage of the taker is complete. Daniel, how are you feeling at this moment in time? What are your thoughts on Ten Hag and his future? Where would you like to see the club go over this season now? Um, I think with Ten Hag, it's a weird one because he, he obviously hasn't implemented his style yet. He hasn't, and he keeps saying he can't which is a kind of a worry because that was the whole reason we hired him to begin with um but i feel also like sacking him at this point doesn't make a difference there's so many issues at the club above him and the players who are largely his players at this point as well but there's so many issues that just getting rid of him doesn't necessarily fix anything so you're in a spot where sacking him probably helps because he's not doing much right now but it also doesn't fix anything so what's the point mm, it's a really it's awkward position Wayne yeah. in terms in terms of the January window plans for United you wrote a piece this morning actually detailing their aims it's quite shocking really what what the plan is yeah I mean they're they're very willing to sell multiple first team stars um however there's lots and lots of caveats with that I mean from what I understand up to six First team stars, they they'd be very happy to listen to offers for um, ones you would have read about, and some maybe not. Um, Varane, Casemiro, Eriksen, um, Sancho, and Van der Beek, obviously. Um, and you know they are players. Some of them aren't absolutely integral, but some of them are regulars and are probably going to play on Sunday actually against against Liverpool. So. The club will get rid of them, but there's not much for a market for them. Um, a lot in the Saudi League, where Casemiro's been linked with the Saudi League, um, Ericsson's been linked with the Saudi League, so has Varane. But a lot of those clubs have already reached their full quota of foreign players. Some of them won't want to change those in mid-season. And I think there's one elite club that haven't reached their quota, but have already got a number of really big names. And a lot of them have kind of reached their financial limits as well so they won't then necessarily want to be handing a three hundred fifty thousand pound a week contract to um a central midfielder whose whose legs have gone and who's currently out and anyway so there are big questions about a market for those players and that makes sales difficult and then united have to sell before they can buy yes they've got targets they've got targets at center back um mark where he's an absolute top target but they won't be signing centre-back for 45 or 50 million unless they can sell some players first. And you know, another issue as well, Lewis, is they're quite tight on financial fair play as well. So, um, and then throw in the Sir Jim Ratcliffe stuff. It's all quite complicated. It's, um, you know, it's not the answer that my United fans want. You know, those ones who think, you know, new owner, you know, Mbappe's on his way. Um, <laughs> sadly, not for them. No, they might be... It's kind of like what I was saying with the, the the squad in terms of you you can sell players if if Ten Hag was to sell I don't know Maguire tomorrow who, who wanted to sell in the summer mm. and then he signed Gwehi that's one of his signings where you'd look on paper and you go okay that's a good signing Maguire wasn't wanted anyway but then none of his signings so far have worked so it's like well is it worth spending another fifty million pound if we're then going to sack him in February. I mean, as a United fan, Daniel, I was quite uh, actually interested in asking you, what do you make of all the players that um, Ten Hag's been buying from players with who were represented by the agency where his son works? I mean, as a United fan, does that bother you at all? Or do you just think, OK, that's football, that's the way I mean, it goes? I, w- I wouldn't mind it so much if they were performing. I think, obviously, mm. everything looks worse when they don't play well. So, for mm. example, I don't know... I don't know exactly who it is that's with the agency. Um, Amrabat, um, Hoyland. 
So I think I don't. I have no problem with the Hoyland signing. I think it made a lot of sense. The money's obviously crazy. Really? Seventy million. That, that yeah, the money's sense. crazy. But no I Premier League goals and seventy million. Yeah, that, that's a worry for sure. Mm. And I do think he could be doing more. But also the team is just. I think no no Man United forward has scored at Old Trafford since May, and that was Sancho. Yeah. So that says. You a know, lot can I just stay in here? Like when you think about Manchester United, you've just said that stat since May. Manchester United, the the size of the club. If you'd said that mm. to Fergie ten or fifteen years ago, he literally his face would have gone purple. Like, like it's it's funny that we talk about Manchester United now as if they're like not a big club, as if this is a normal thing. It's you know the the way in which football has changed over the last ten or fifteen years. And like, Daniel, I know you will have experienced it firsthand. Is is absolutely remarkable. Like, surely that stat to you is really worrying. Top goal yeah. scorer Scott McTominay. It's like that's a real problem. And he's especially, terrible. Yeah. <laughs> he's terrible. He's your best yeah. player, isn't he, Daniel? He's absolutely not even. Oh, that's, he, should, that's, he should be the first one. So, so, he should be the first one to go. What six yeah. six Premier League goals this season uh, from from the number six position? Yeah. He could score a hundred. I'd want him out. He's really? terrible. I've never seen a central midfielder hide from the ball so much. It's, wow! It's I can't believe what over over your. Yeah, I thought I thought you'd be. I thought he'd be like first name in your Man United Liverpool combined eleven, which will I come too shortly. I would. Right. I, I'm of the belief where where things aren't working right now, the manager should be trying new things. So you've got players like Hannibal, Kobe uh, Minor, who's breaking in the last few weeks. Um, Donny Van der Beek. I, I'm. Not, I don't think Van der Beek is good enough for this level. I think he's proven that in the three years he's been yeah. here. But at what point do you play someone else when no one else is playing well? So Amrabat's not been playing well. McTominay, yes, he's scored a few goals, but his overall performances have been shocking. You've got um, Mason Mount was a £60 million signing sitting on the bench for no reason. Not really sure what's going on there. Ericsson hasn't had legs for most of his career. And then you've got someone like Van der Beek who knows the manager's system in and out from Ajax. He's a goal threat. He's proven that in his career. And he's hungry. He keeps begging for chances to play. Mm. Yes, the chances he's had, he's not taken. But at what point do you say, here's another chance, when you've got no other options? But Daniel, isn't isn't the feeling, though, that if you do say, right, let's play the kids, let's start Hannibal and Minor on the weekend against Liverpool, aren't you just admitting total defeat that your midfield is so useless that you're having to play? And again, I think kids do come in. I think they do bring an energy and enthusiasm that players that are effectively slacking, like you've hinted at, you know, players that are maybe dropping a five, six out of ten every week, they will come in and give it their all. But doesn't that then highlight actually Ten Hag's lack of interpersonal skills and actually the unity in this squad? Because the fact that your top goal scorer is McTominay and you don't even rate him. I mean, that to me says it all, really. I think it can seem that way. But also when you look at, for example, Garnacho's come in, Rashford's been terrible this season and I'm Rashford's biggest fan. But Garnacho came in and he's immediately made an impact. And whether he's he's not good for the entire 90 minutes every week, mm. but he's a kid. He's going to be inconsistent. Yeah. But if the players that come in make a difference in a positive way, why does it matter how old they are or whether they played previously? If, if Van der Beek comes in and makes the midfield better for even this six-week period between mm. now and the end of January, that's a good thing. That can't be seen as a negative in any way. Whether that saves us spending 40 million on a new midfielder, whether that gets him a buyer, because like Wayne said, we're struggling for, to find anybody who wants to buy our players. Even though this little six-week period, you, you you have these players in your squad, you're paying them a wage, use them. It, it, I mean, nothing else me is working, you might as well. I, I do agree to it. I would say one thing that I remember, sorry, and we, we won't, we don't need to bring up the 7-0 defeat last year because I know we'll cover that. We, we can, we can be up 7-0 defeat. <laughs> All right, well, we can then. You know, mm. but one thing... There'll be another one in a few days, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go, it'll be a repeat. Daniel, if I'm not mistaken, I think Hannibal came on in that game last year and he, um, even for the last five or ten and he was all over the place, as in in terms of he was everywhere, he was up for tackles. So I agree to an extent, but I think my point more was about I think there is a problem with dropping five or six first-team players and bringing in fringe players and young players, because in essence, you're then saying that, well, your squad is is actually full of Deadwood, although it seems to be actually that you might you might feel that way anyway. I mean, yeah, but you don't necessarily need to change all of them at once. Again, if, if for example, Liverpool at the weekend, uh, Rashford and Marshall were both missing against Bayern Munich, so whether they're available or not, we don't know. Uh, Mount is still injured, Ericsson is still injured. So the midfield is, Bruno suspended, so the midfield is going to be Amrabat, McTominay, plus one. Why? Minor, probably. 
Probably yeah. Mino, but yeah. why does it have to be those three? You've got other options, and those two of those three aren't playing that well right now. So, so I mean, as, a, as a United fan, as a United fan, is it slight? I mean, obviously, it's you know very deflated on a number of issues here, but Liverpool fans are begging for Ten Hag to stay in charge for for Sunday. They're begging him to stay in charge long term, and you're saying, "Oh, let's stick." Stick by the manager. There's no one else. We also got all these takeover takeover issues, etc. Um, and they're all really good points. The club doesn't have um, sort of in position to, to buy those players in January at the moment. But your biggest rivals, your most hated rivals, are saying, "Please keep that guy in the dugout because it helps us." I'm not necessarily keep Ten Hag, but I'm also not all the way Ten Hag out just because, like you said, there aren't any obvious options to come in and replace him. Anyone else would be a gamble. And there's no guarantee that... We, we've changed managers so many times in the last 10 years and nothing has changed. But, the, but, but it's because you keep pointing the wrong manager. But That's we also why. have so many issues beyond the manager that it yeah. kind of doesn't make a difference at this point. You could get Jesus Christ himself. If the, the vision of the club isn't aligned, mm. it's not going to help. Yeah. And right now you've got this guy over here wants to sign these players for this reason. And this guy wants these people. And these people have to stay because the image of the club. And this guy, he's academy, so he should be here anyway, just because. Yeah. And, none of, and you're just kind of putting square pegs in round holes. And so is, is this think, season... Sorry, go on, you, you finished, but sorry. I was going to say, I think the reason Ten Hag came in and the reason a lot of people were behind him is because he kind of, he seemed to have that no-nonsense thing to him with the Ronaldo situation, stripping Maguire of the captaincy, um, immediately dropping Maguire when he didn't perform in the first couple of games. He had this thing about him where he was going to do it his way regardless. And that's mm. gone away in the last six months or so. And I think that's why fans are kind of like, well, if you're not going to do it, you could be anyone else. It's, it's gone away because he's upset so many people behind the scenes because he's yeah. upset so many players and obviously there's this dressing room late leak um last week so <coughs> doing it his way has um fractured the dressing room and um and that, although... that then tells you that the, the players are probably the wrong ones to be at man united if they're not willing to yeah have a, a culture change where that's yeah. clearly a positive one because of so many things that have gone wrong in the last even three years never mind ten if if they're not willing to see those changes if you look at tottenham for example where Everything has changed in six months. Mm. It's the same players. They, they've only had, I don't know, they didn't sign that many players in summer. They lost their best, arguably their best player ever. Yeah. And yeah. they've gone, they've got better. Yeah. Maybe not individually, but you can see exactly what they're planning to do. And, yeah. and, and also, they're, they're, they're fun to watch, aren't they? I mean, Man United are boring. Football's, <laughs> the football's abysmal. There, there is no, if you talk about Tenor's identity, I can't see what that identity is because. There's no structure, um, there's no intent. And the way they went out of the Champions League, that was horrendous and embarrassing um, and, um, and so bad for Man United, a club of that standing. I actually think as well that what makes it worse is nobody was surprised. No one was surprised. And the fans weren't even, the fans weren't even jeering because they were yeah. like, OK, and this is what we expected. We beat Chelsea in midweek and then lost 3-0 to Bournemouth and nobody was shocked. Yeah. And that tells you everything about where the club is right now. So, Daniel, going forwards and sort of wrap up this before we move on to our little fun games to finish. What's a success for United this season? Now that really, you know, the Europe, European football has, has gone in the bin. Are you hoping maybe for like an FA Cup run? Are you hoping for top four? What would you count as, as, as a success for Ten Hag? Um, yeah, he has to, well, he has to match last season. So that's win a trophy in top four. But even then, that's not progress. So it's hard to say that that's a success. It's the same. Um, but I, I would say if he matched last season, he's probably bought himself. I, I, I will, I will wager um, my my mortgage and my <laughs> life savings, which aren't that money much, by the way, that he will not match last season. And yeah, nice I, I'll bet he doesn't get to the end of the season. Uh, mm. I would, I would, I would doubt he's still there by the time the FA Cup final gets played. Is the worry then, though, that it's going to turn into an, another campaign where you're going to have an interim manager for six months, you're going to get someone else in or whatever in the summer, and it's going to be then the wrong appointment? What do you do? If he does go, who are you looking at? I mean, I know one name that was sort of floating around was Graham Potter, supposedly um, Sir Jim Ratcliffe's a fan of him. Would you like him in? Who who replaces Ten Hag? Because really, the, the options are slim pickings. I think if, if the person who sacks Ten Hag is the person appointing the next manager, then they need to have some kind of vision. Whether if, if Potter is the guy that they see as leading that vision, 
that's fine. I have no problem with that because there's no obvious candidate. And I think that was the issue Tottenham had where there was no obvious person to come in and replace uh, Conte. Yeah, I, I think there is actually an obvious candidate. I think um, he's sitting in the Brighton dugout. I, I, I mean, I think Deserby would be brilliant ma- a brilliant manager. Man, with the right backing, there has to be the right backing. Has to and has I mean, to be a plan. Brighton isn't the best right now, is it? He's, I think he's won one of seven. Yeah, but just, on, just in terms of having an identity, a playing style, um, fitting players to that playing style. I mean, Brighton are still punchy above their weight. I mean, yes, they're probably not as um, effective as they were in the final months of last season, but they're, they're, they're great to watch consistently as well. I think we just, Man United fans have this tendency to jump on the next hype train. Yeah. Right now, that is the Zerbi. But was uh, t- was Ten Hag ever a hype train? I don't think he was. Who was calling yeah, for Ten Hag? After the Ajax semi-final and yeah. all of that stuff. Yeah, definitely. He was the guy. He was the next pet. Nah. Uh, I think the Zerbi's in that same boat. Right, the same way Potter was when he went to Chelsea. He was the next big thing. And then the, only thing he's got, the only thing he's got in common with Pep is his shiny head, I would say. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's nothing else. There's well, nothing else. So to wrap up this segment, Wayne, at the beginning, you said they're not going to be signing Mbappe. The only time Daniel will be signing Mbappe with Man United is on EAFC 24, logging on and getting him joining the club. If we come to the final segment now and we do our combined Liverpool and Manchester United 11 ahead of Super Sunday. Now, a few rules before we get into this, as um, we found a few weeks ago with Paul Robinson. Go and check that if you haven't listened already. Our formations went in the bin and it was a bit confusing. So we've said we've agreed we're going to be playing a 4-2-3-1 and we're not... we're going to be having players that have at least featured this season or have some involvement. So, so, so just featured one minute or half the minutes, or is there how, how strict regularly is what you say? Yeah, you know, Looking at least okay. a few games. You know, we we you can't have ex Wonder Kid come in and okay. say, you know, but that's okay. totally up to you. All right, Lewis, so- Lewis likes his rules. Be warned. <laughs> yeah. I remember we- I watched the episode of Robinson. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. about John Stone. Well, no, because otherwise Wayne's going to be playing a one-one-two-two-one. Yeah. So we we have to be very careful with to our win the match, Lewis. Yeah, yeah, no, to win. I agree. I'm, I'm all for it. I'm all for it. Um, if we start in goal, Daniel, I'll come to you as our as our guest right now. Who are you going in goal? Who's your goalkeeper to start? Oh no, anyone with Liverpool badge. Anyone. It could be Kelleher if you want. I don't mind. Not Onana. So we're going to say we're going to say Allison then. I'll go with Allison to be safe, but anyone but Onana. <laughs> okay, Wayne, what are your what are your thoughts? Are you going Ali as well? Yeah, I mean, I don't think even Onana's um, nearest and dearest and most loved ones would be voting for him in this in this um, glove off. Yeah, it's Allison. Yeah, Allison nailed. I think Allison's right? probably the best goalkeeper in Premier League history. Oh yeah. Yeah, with that, I mean, certainly, yeah, probably him Schmeichel. I would say. Yeah, I caught the end of Schmeichel. Yeah, I'm not that old. I, I yeah. caught the end of Schmeichel. I'm old enough to have caught all of Schmeichel. Um, <laughs> yeah, he was he was the real deal. I'd say, yeah, Alison Schmeichel the best for me. Wow. If we if we come to to right back now, this is where it gets quite interesting because it depends on how you see, of course, Mr. Trent Alexander Arnold. Uh, Wayne, we'll come to you. Who have you put in right back? Who would you like to start in in that position? I've gone for the Liverpool man um, okay. in this very strict formation. You've given me Lewis. <laughs> yeah, he ha- he has to be in the team. He is he has been Liverpool's best player over the last um, couple of months. I think he's been absolutely brilliant. Often more effective going into midfield. Slight exception against Palace on Saturday, but he's generally been brilliant. He's added goals to his game a little bit as well. You've been able to strike a good ball, but he's been properly nailing them. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say he is in the three most important players at Liverpool. Yeah. No, Daniel, what are your thoughts? Who have you put a right back? Yeah, I've gone Trent as well. Uh, uh, I think he's probably one of the easier picks considering the, the options opposite him. Um, yeah, he's everything Wayne said is spot on. I think yeah, Trent's an easy pick there. Now, actually, interestingly, I actually went for Aaron Wan-Bissaka because I like an old-school fullback and because I was going to put Trent in midfield, but that's fine. We'll uh, we'll put Trent a right back. Ooh, Moving on. Ooh. Okay, yeah. controversial. Moving, yeah, moving on to centre backs. We'll um we'll talk about that right sided centre back. Daniel, this might be your your moment of glory here to start with. Are you uh who who are you eyeing up for that position? Yeah, I'll, I'll go. Uh, you'll be doing the pair. I'll do. You do, uh, do the pair, yeah. Yeah, I'll do Van Dijk and Varane. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think Varane's time at United has been wildly underrated. I don't think he's obviously hit his Real Madrid levels, uh, but I still think he's comfortably our best centre back when fit. I, the fact. 
uh, Ten Hag is not playing him right now is baffling to me. Um, but yeah, and I think Konate and Matip are good on their day, but I think everyone at their best, Varane is easily the next best under Van Dijk. When are you agreeing with that? Have you gone? Have you gone for that pairing too? I've I've not gone for that pairing, although I think that I appreciate Daniel's argument. It's a very strong argument, but um, Varane, he's not in the Man United team, a very weak Man United team, even though he is currently fit and often he's not. Um, he's got major knee issues. His knees are like bread. Um, Man United want him out, which says a lot. Um, he's not going to get a new contract. So I'm going for Liverpool player. I think Matip's a reasonable shout, um, but obviously he's out. <coughs> I'm going to go for Canate. Um, Canate's not been particularly good this season, but he has got the tools to be a top centre-back. I think mentality is an issue, though, for Canate. I'm not convinced he will be elite centre-back at Liverpool, but he definitely has the tools to be one. So he just about gets in. Okay, I went for Virgil van Dijk and Varane. I think Varane on his day is probably arguably a better centre-back. So there you go. Daniel can cheer oh. and, and wave the flag. That <laughs> Big win there for Daniel. 1-0 for Sunday. Let's go. Huge. Yeah. If, if we focus on left-back again, this might not be much of an argument. Um, Wayne, who have you gone with for, for down the left-hand side? Um, I'm going for the man who's out with a dislocated shoulder. Um, it's got to be Andrew Robertson. Much missed by Liverpool at the moment. Even though he's probably one of the technically less gifted players in that first 11 at Liverpool. His attitude, commitment, second to none, durability, um, very underrated for the, um, on the creative side and the overlap as well. Um, Missed so much. When Gomez plays at left back, um, fish out of water is probably the best possible phrase. Um, So yeah, definitely, obviously. Daniel, what are your thoughts? Are you, are you going to argue Shaw maybe, or is it, is it, uh, dead, it, it was one that I was willing to argue. I think sh- Shaw has had his moments where he's been very, very good. I just think he's too inconsistent, too injury-prone. Can't really rely on him. Um, I do think Robinson Robertson's form has dropped in the last 12 months or so, but I still think he's he's probably better than Luke Shaw right now. So I'd, right, I'd so go Robertson too. We'll go with that. We'll go with Robbo as well then. What about the, the two in midfield, Daniel? What are your thoughts? The two, what you call it, box-to-boxes, number eights, whatever you want to refer it to as. Uh, so... I want to premise this with Casemiro's legs are gone. but You, you know, have not got Casemiro in your team. <laughs> only because I what? personally don't think McAllister is all that. I think he's quite overrated because of the World Cup. Wow. Um, and I think a proper DM is needed in that system. So I would go Casemiro and Sabozovic. Okay, Wayne. What do you? What are your thoughts? Wow, that's um, a big. I, I agree with Daniel that a proper DM is needed, but I don't think Casemiro is a proper DM. Um, he's actually better at being a number eight himself and sort of getting into the box. His scoring record at United is actually pretty impressive. Um, but no way does Casemiro get in my team. Um, none of the main I'm central midfielders are good enough, have been good enough. But I, I like the look of mainly. By the way, he looks really. High class, and he's got a lot of potential. But I've got to go with two Liverpool players. I'm not going with McAllister, actually. Um, I think I've got a massively over-aggressive team here because I'm going with Shabozlai and Gravenberg. Um, wow. Shabozlai speaks for himself. Um, Gravenberg, I think, has got huge potential. I don't think Liverpool fans have anywhere near seen the best of him. Um, I think driving forward with the ball, he's got a lot of quality. I think he'll, I think he'll be... Make a massive impact when he learns how to play the clock way, and he hasn't at the moment. And I think I, I think there's probably lots of coaching of him going on behind the scenes. Um, but I think his level is above, um, far beyond Elliot, Curtis Jones, and those other guys. I think he could be a really top player. Yeah, I'll I'll go with that. I agree. I th- I think that's I think that's definitely definitely. <coughs> we'll go for so Graham Birch and Sabozla then in midfield. If we come to right wing, this might be one that we skip quite quickly, Daniel. Um, is there any argument against Mohamed Salah or is that... I would pick name? you before I put Anthony in the team. <laughs> we'll, we'll go with Salah. But have you seen Lewis play, though? That's the question. Nope. They used I'd, to call I'd, me. They used to call me Iron Robin back in the day on the wing. Yeah, on the right wing, it was cut and shoot. That's I'd put your who, who caught, who caught you, Iron Robin, Lewis? Well, I used to wear. I used to have. I used to have Bayern Munich gloves, so it might be a bit of a stretch. To be fair, but anyway, we'll. Um, I would, <laughs> I would, anybody that you can think of, I would put them before Anthony. I would get that guy the hell out of here really quick. Okay. So I'll go with Salah and keep it simple. 
Okay, Wayne, I'm, I'm sure I'm taking you're agreeing as well. Yeah, big red tick for Mo from me. Yeah, there you go. And what about the left wing? Who, who, is any argument potentially Garnacho, Rashford, or, or is it is actually Luis Diaz, Nunes? Oh, oh no, not Diaz for me. Um, oh. I would be more than happy if Liverpool were to sell Diaz. I don't think he's anywhere near the player he was um, before his injury. Before his injury, that sustained in Arsenal game. He was brilliant before then. He was Liverpool's best player in the first few months of last season. Um, since he came back from the injury, he's been nowhere near that player. I think I don't know if it's mentality or there is some sort of physical trauma as a result of that, but he, he looks nowhere near the player he was. I thought it's really disappointed in him on Saturday, but that's not been the first time he's been like that a lot. I think he was only in the team because um, Jota was unavailable. Um, of the Liverpool front five, the Senior front five, that includes Jota, who's out injured. I would say Lewis Diaz looks the worst of them at the moment. Um, time going for Rashford. I thought Rashford was amazing last season. If he was playing on Sunday, he, on Liverpool's behalf, he would be the main United player I would fear the most. Yeah. I think he has that capacity, can be electrifying. I know he's been dreadful this season. Um, there's obviously an issue between him and Ten Hag, but he was brilliant this season. But he seems to have these seasons, doesn't he? Like two years ago, he had the same season, he was rubbish. And then the season before, he was brilliant. So next season, he'll be amazing again. Um, but he seems that type of player, maybe can't consistently deliver year in, year out. Maybe he is that. But, on his, but, but Liverpool, Liverpool would fear him if he was to start on Sunday, for sure. Daniel, yeah, what are your thoughts? I, I, are you going to go for Rashford then? I'd go Rash. I think... Um... Right now, he's terrible, and you could probably make an argument for Garnacho ahead of him. But I think if you're going on the ability of the players at their best, I think he's the best left winger in the two squads. Um, but that said, he's been horrible this season, and he needs to fuck up. Sure. Yeah, we'll, we'll go for Rashford then. I'm actually going to make the argument first for number 10 before we get going. I'm, I'm going to throw this one out there because earlier, Daniel, you said that Scott McTominay, you want him first out the door. I'm actually going to put him at number 10 because I... I don't <laughs> want Bruno Fernandes in my squad. I don't feel... I'm calling this team Composure FC, and I don't believe... So, so why is McTominay in it, then? Because <laughs> it comes up in big moments. If you talk if you talk to one of our editors, Daniel Bowers, he is an absolute advocate for... Who is Scottish, by the Who's way. Scottish, yeah. He always comes up... Scotland have two good players. <laughs> he always comes up with big goals. And my argument for it was, I like an old school in the box, like a Marouan Fellaini, someone to get in there. I don't want a player who's going to moan at everyone else and is going to be disappointed. That's my argument. I've put him at number 10 for a bit of fun to mix it up. What are your thoughts? Um, I've, got, I've got Bruno, number 10. I think... Um, yes, he has a really weak mentality. He is not a leader in a million years or a captain, but technically he's on a different level to all the midfielders apart from Shabozlai, I would say. And under Jurgen Klopp, because Klopp is managing this team, Ten Hag, um, he can put the cones out and maybe pass the water <laughs> to the players at half time. But under Klopp's management, I think Fernandez could be a genuine. A, Genuine superstar, one of the best players in the league. He's got the ability. He just needs a proper team and a proper manager. He's my number 10. Daniel, what are your thoughts? Uh, I'm probably in the minority as a Portuguese Man United fan. I'm not a massive Bruno fan. Hmm. I think he's vastly overrated. I think he makes way too many simple mistakes. Uh, little five-yard passes that he, are astray all the time, pressing like a headless chicken. Hollywood passes to force things when he doesn't need to. Uh, they all cost us regularly. But with that said, I don't think Liverpool have a traditional number 10 in their squad. So I have to pick them because I refuse to pick McTominay in any form. Well, look, because you're because you're the United fan and you've agreed with with Wayne, of course, Bruno can go in, and that's that's fine. Yeah. I'll, I'll say that with with gritted teeth. To wrap it up at number nine, is Wayne going to go for his favourite, Mister Mister Unknown? Yeah, Darwin yeah. My 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 number one, my number one, Darwin Nunes. He's he leads the line in this team. I've got two main United players in my team, so he's it has to be Nunes, Martial. Um, no, thank you very much. Oh, he's the sixth player, by the way. Who they would be sixth person side? They'd be willing to sell in January. I don't think Hoyland's. Good enough. Yeah, he's raw. Yes, Nunes is raw, but Nunes could easily score a hat-trick against Man United on Sunday or alternatively miss a hat-trick of Cities. But he does scare defenders. He gets in good positions and he he tries his absolute hardest. A lot of his stuff doesn't come off, but he genuinely cares, which you could not say that for a lot of, Man, a lot of the Man United players. 
Daniel, what do you think? Would you rather? Would you like Darwin Nunez, or is there any argument maybe for is Gakpo involved? What would you say? Uh, no, I think I think Nunez is the pick. I don't think there's actually that much difference between Hoyland and Nunez. Um, I just think as it stands today, Nunez is probably the more dangerous player because of the way he he just creates chaos. When it, whereas Hoyland is still learning how to create the chaos that he thrives in. Um, so I would go Nunez. I don't think either of them are particularly elite right now. Um, I think they could both can be. They both have the attributes to get there. Uh, I would go Nunes for now, but if somebody said Hoyland, I wouldn't be particularly mad at it. But I'll, I'd go Nunes as well. I put Cody Gakpo in there, and that wasn't to, that, that that wasn't to be any different. I just wanted someone with a cool head and someone that I know I can like cool with. heads, Lewis, don't you? Because I'm all for a differential. Anyway, to wrap up that right. there, our team in full. We've got Allison in goal. Across the back four, we've got Trent Van Dyke, Varane, and Robertson. The two in midfield, we've got Sabozlai and Graven Birch. The three attackers, we've got Salah, Bruno, and Rashford, and up top to be scoring all the goals or potentially missing Darwin Nunez. That there wraps up a fantastic episode. Thanks for tuning in today. So much gossip and exclusive news across a range of subjects. Many thanks to both Wayne Vizi and Daniel Feliciano for their expert analysis and detail on all the stories, as well as our combined 11. I'm still confident that Scott McTominay should have been included. If you have enjoyed this podcast episode, please give it a share on social media wherever you can. And any clips you see on YouTube, make sure to give us a like and a comment, as well as subscribing to the channel. I'm Lewis Pears, and we'll speak to you all on the next show here on the Inside Track.